welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. This week, we'll cover how the head of Vatican security, a man nicknamed the Pope's guardian angel, resigned after a media leak related to ongoing financial investigations. Next up, we'll talk about how the Amazon Synod is different from any synods we've seen before, and how it's hit the ground running in its first week talking about big possible changes. Finally, we cover this weekend's canonization of Cardinal John Henry Newman, and what it means particularly to Charles, the Prince of Wales. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from New York, Jerry. Good morning from a cloudy and very humid Rome, Colleen. Let's get started with our first story. Um, Last week on Inside the Vatican, we told you about how Vatican police raided several offices in the Vatican's Secretariat of State and the office of its financial watchdog as part of an investigation into what the Vatican is calling financial irregularities. And one part of that story that we said would need to be looked into was how the media got a hold of the photos of all the people whose offices had been raided and who had been suspended. Now, those photos appeared to have come from Vatican security, who would have distributed them to security guards to ensure that the suspended employees weren't allowed into their offices. Now, sources told Jerry that the Pope was really unhappy with the fact that these photos leaked, and yesterday, on Monday, October 14th, the Vatican confirmed that the head of Vatican security resigned after he was unable to identify who leaked the photos. Jerry, this head of Vatican security, Commando Domenico Gianni, is often the Pope's bodyguard. He's sometimes referred to even as the Pope's guardian angel. And multiple sources say that he had nothing to do with the leak. So I'm wondering, why did he resign? Well, uh, the leaking of this confidential security document was a major uh, breach of security. Domenico Gianni uh, was overall responsible for security in the Vatican. The Pope got very upset that the people had been effectively given a media lynching. This is what they refer to it as here. And he felt that these are people who have not been charged with anything. There's an investigation going on. They've been suspended from work, but they should not be presented as criminals or as wanted people. And the, the, the pictures that uh, were posted in the media with their photos, etc., reminded many people of the Far West, the Wild West, with wanted signs on them. Right. We see Pope Francis do this thing a lot where he's like, he's very in favor of um, the presumption of innocence, right? He never wants something to happen where people see photos like this and assume someone is guilty. He wants everyone to have kind of a due process thing, which we've seen, um, I think, in the case of the Chilean bishops too last fall. And in the case of Cardinal Pell in Australia. Right, exactly. He, He wants the judicial process to be carried through before anybody is treated as as a wrongdoer. So uh, Gianni was very well trusted in the Vatican, and he seems to have left kind of on good terms with the Pope. Pope Francis made some really positive comments about him in a Vatican statement following his resignation. But it also seems significant that he wasn't able to source a major leak like this. And I'm kind of wondering what we're supposed to make of that, that the person in charge couldn't find the source of the leak. Well, Gianni was responsible, as I said, for overall security. The Pope called him when he heard about the leak and said, uh, I want you to find out who leaked this. Then he made clear also, I think, that he had to take responsibility if he couldn't find the person. And so Jenny came back and made clear to the Pope, I haven't been able to identify the culprit. Uh, I therefore want to step down 
and uh, let someone else uh, take over because the investigation is going on and it's part of the investigation now. So let's zoom out a little bit to this larger financial investigation that's going on. We don't know a lot about the specifics, but we do know that this is a battle that Pope Francis has been fighting for his whole pontificate. We've seen him bring in people to try to clean up Vatican finances over and over again. Just last week, he brought in this former mafia prosecutor who uh, he's going to run the Vatican's criminal tribunal for this case. Um, and Jerry, I'm wondering, you know, what these recent developments tell us about Pope Francis's priorities in this situation. From the beginning, and indeed, it was the request of the cardinals before the conclave, they wanted the whole of the financial affairs of the Vatican cleaned up. They said, we do not want people out there finding out that there are scandals, there's mishandling of money. We want an honest operation going. Francis took that request from the pre-conclave meetings very seriously. And from June, of 2013, that's within two or three months of being becoming Pope, he set up a, a reform process that is going on and that has made major changes. Uh, they've cleaned up the Vatican Bank today. Uh, this bank seems to be operating really in a very good way. And many accounts have been closed. People have been prosecuted for uh, mishandling of funds and financial dealings. Right. We should say that those accounts that were closed were really sketchy kind of accounts. They were opened by people who shouldn't have had access to open. Well, there were about 15,000 of them. Yeah, it, there were a lot of accounts. And uh, the question is how they started in the first place. But Francis is determined to clean house. And he has given the prosecutors the freedom to go where is necessary to prosecute whoever is necessary, whatever rank. And in fact, in this recent raid, they came in at mid-level people. But the questions are, was their responsibility higher up? Could these mid-level people be responsible for uh, signing off on major monetary transactions? Uh, Francis, as you said, brought in this uh, uh, very senior prosecutor judge from Italy, who'd who'd done a lot of the criminal um, association prosecutions here. And so he's a man who knows his way around. And uh, we're dealing here with uh, basically trying to ensure that every Catholic who gives money to the church knows that the money is being used honestly. It's not going to be used for purposes for which it is not destined. And Francis keeps reminding people here, the money you have is the money of the poor. That's why we've got it. It's not to enrich the rich, it's to help the poor and to forward the church's mission, which is a mission to the poor. Yeah, absolutely. So, Jerry, there was one recent development right before we started recording this morning on Tuesday the 15th. Pope Francis just appointed a new head of Vatican security. What can you tell us about this guy? Well, this man is an engineer called Gianluca Gauzzi Broccoletti. They call him uh, Gianluca Gauzzi because he's got two names, but they use the first one. Got it. And what kind of engineer are we talking? He's a cyber security expert. He's an expert in networking and in technology and this. He, he was a guy who, for example, was involved in ensuring that there was no technological eavesdropping at the 
2005 and 2013 conclave. Ah, where they had that whole system where they uh, added those layers of insulation to the conclave hall and all that. Absolutely, yeah. He's an expert in this field. It's very significant. He joined the Gendarmerie at the age of 24, immediately after university. He's been 21 years working there. He gradually climbed the ladder. He Last year, the Pope, in the end of last year, appointed him as the deputy to Commander Jenny, who resigned yesterday. So he was kind of next in line. When he was appointed, everybody knew that it signaled that Jenny would be moving on soon. All right. And if you want to learn more about the new head of Vatican Security, you can read Jerry's story, which is up now at americamagazine.org. So last time we talked, the Synod on the Amazon, the big meeting of cardinals and bishops from the Amazon region and theological and ecological experts and indigenous people, was just getting started at the Vatican. Now we're a week in, and the discussions of what the church in the Amazon region does, can, and should look like are in full swing. Jerry, I want to get into the substance of the conversations the Synod has been having in a little bit, but first, there are a few things that are different in this Synod than in past ones. Can you tell me a bit about those? Well, in past Synods, people came from many parts of the world, especially when they were general synods, and they weren't quite sure what people in another country were was thinking. Here we have people from the nine countries of the Amazon region. That's most of the participants. They know each other very well. Right. So this has created a much higher base level of understanding. So they've been able to launch into a lot of um, conversations more easily rather than spending a lot of time trying to get to know each other. Absolutely. They hit the ground running. Right. They didn't have to learn about the issues. They knew what the issues were, so they could move much more quickly. The atmosphere is very, very relaxed and sometimes hilarious. They're enjoying themselves and they're allowed, to, they don't have to wear their cassocks and their sashes. They can come in in their suits. In fact, I saw one bishop going in with a jeans. But the, the, the Pope is quite relaxed about that. The Pope has never sat on protocol that you have to be dressed in a certain way for an event. The, the Pope is very relaxed about this. He said, if you come in in a way you're comfortable, then we we all feel more comfortable. And it eases the tensions. We're also seeing the lay people um, sitting mixed in with the bishops, which Luke Hansen, who's one of our special correspondents for the Synod, said uh, was something new. He hadn't seen that before. So we talked about how quickly these discussion groups have been able to kind of start addressing some of the bigger issues. And it's been surprising to me how quickly they've taken up uh, these ideas for, you know, what have been kind of hot topics or things that have been seen as uh, big changes. One thing that was brought up was the idea of creating a new right, like R-I-T-E, for the Amazon that would be similar to the Eastern churches where they would still be Catholic, they'd still be in communion with the Pope, but they'd have unique ways of worshiping and their liturgies and maybe would have different guidelines about priestly celibacy and so on. And the Synod has also already in the first few days started talking about new ministry roles for women, the idea of ordaining mature married men to do priestly ministry. Jerry, what stuck out to you as you've been following these discussions about official ministry roles for women in the Amazon region? Has there been anything significant that, that sticks out to you? What has come across repeatedly in the briefings, and the briefings reflect what has happened in the, in the Synod Hall, is that bishops have said, and also women themselves who have spoken at the briefings, religious women especially, the work women are doing in many of these communities is extraordinary. 
first of all, they're present in the zones. Right, which can't always be said for priests. As one bishop explained, look, he said, my diocese is the size of half of Italy or half of Germany. He said, there's no way I or the 62 priests I have can be cover this. Without the women, the church would, would be collapsing. So the, the women do so many things from uh, catechetical work, instructing children, instructing adults. They baptize the children. There's no priest around. They preside at the weddings because people want some kind of official church presence uh, since the priest can't be there. They preach at the liturgy of the word because the priest isn't there so they can't have mass. So they will preach, they will read, read the lessons. The lay people might read if, if 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 they are able to read. And then they can also... In some cases, one sister said, I've heard confessions. I can't give absolution because I don't have the the power of orders, but at least the, the person who is dying is happy to have somebody to confess to before God, and God hears him. They are doing phenomenal work. And the question that's coming up in the Synod, shouldn't the Church recognize formally, in some way, the ministry of women? Yeah, I've been really struck by um, <clears throat> the fact that we've seen bishops get up at these press conferences, uh, you know, about the synod where they tell us what they've been discussing. And some of the bishops have been very vocal about being supportive of a women's diaconate or official ministry roles for women. And I don't know, it seems to be a sign to me of how openly these questions are being discussed. I've heard, as just you said, a bishop saying, if the Pope gives me clearance in the morning, I'll ordain uh, women as deacons. Uh, I think what we are seeing, and I think it's important that the listeners understand, we are seeing the Latin American church after 400 years, more than 400 years, 500 years of evangelization, bringing riches and experience into the church and revitalizing the church and coming with new ideas. And in fact, it's very interesting that when one bishop said that when the nun holds the liturgy, but with obviously not celebrating Mass, but distributing communion, the people say, I like the Mass done by the sister. I like it more than that done by the priest who we see once or twice a year, because she is living with us. Right. You have an actual pastoral connection. Um, On this question of ordaining older married men, I think it's important for us to highlight that The conversations in the Synod Hall on this haven't really been about celibacy. That's been kind of secondary, right? It's been more about access to the Eucharist. Absolutely. A few bishops, or I should say cardinals, have come up and kind of said, we shouldn't touch celibacy. This is the tradition of the Church. Well, it's not the tradition of the Church. It is the tradition of the Latin Church from a certain point in history. And the the bishops are coming forward And I heard this way back in the first synod I I covered in 1985, 1987. The bishop saying, people can't have the Eucharist. The church, the popes, all the popes have said, the church is built around the Eucharist. This Eucharist is central to the church. Well, what happens if you don't have the Eucharist? There are so many communities who have the Eucharist, maybe once every three months, once a month, maybe if they're very lucky, once a year, maybe once in two years. 
Right. And it's been brought up that, um, you know, sometimes even the the hosts from the one mass that they have in this community per year can't can't even last all year in the Amazon's climate. Exactly. But the, the fact is that you have communities where the Eucharist is not celebrated. The, the bishops are saying, look, what is more important to having the Eucharist for the community or to stick by a law which hasn't been there from day one of Christianity. We've had Peter and perhaps other popes who have were married. Why don't we, in this situation, ordain people within the villages or in the communities, in the distant communities, who uh, would be able to to minister to their people? And this is the point that's being made in the Synod. There's first of all the centrality of the Eucharist, but also the ministry of being present not just visiting, but being present. And they say this is a very important element in terms of evangelization. So, Jerry, let's talk about the last big part of this, which is the big challenge that the Amazon region is facing right now, which is the ecological question. Um, I'm wondering, you know, what stood out to you from the discussions about the environment at the Senate up to this point? There is grave concern that if things don't change, not alone will people in the Amazon region suffer, the nine countries, the 34 million people. But the whole of humanity will suffer. We have the forests which are burning, which are being destroyed. We have the water which is being polluted. We have extractive industries being carried out without the consent of the local people. They don't even have a word in it. We have these people who come and work in these. They also bring a lot of human rights violations Women are used as prostitutes. Also, uh, many indigenous leaders have been killed or they have been criminalized. I've heard a lot of the bishops saying, you know, it is not right that these people who protest for the rights of their people are criminalized. Jerry, I want to ask you about that, because particularly in Brazil, we've been seeing this tension emerging between the church who's taking like the side of the poor who are negatively in- impacted by this rapid development and the state. You know, I think of Brazil, you have the Bolsonaro government, uh, which is very much in favor of the corporations. And, and you know, you have this tension between the church and the state who are on opposite sides of this. Um and I'm wondering, what is happening in the Synod conversations? What do the conversations within the Synod about ecology and human rights mean for the church's relationship with the state, particularly in a place like Brazil? The church has taken a very big stand because it sees that the gospel preaches justice. Are they worried about the possible consequences? No. They see their role as prophetic and courageous. And the Pope has encouraged them in this way. When the Pope canonized Archbishop Romero, he did it in St. Peter's because he said Romero is now an example for the whole church. And that is a fearless defense of poor people, fearless defense, courageous defense of people taking prophetic stances. And I am sure that the final document of the Synod will strongly emphasize this. You'll be hearing more about the Amazon Synod in the coming weeks on Inside the Vatican. And if you want to follow day by day, we're doing updates on americamagazine.org.
Amidst all the excitement of the Synod, the Pope also canonized five people this weekend. Four women from a variety of backgrounds who were known for their work with the poor, and Cardinal John Henry Newman, who is an influential theologian. He was a convert from the Church of England to Catholicism, and he's the only English-born saint to have been born after 1800. It's been a long time since England has had a new saint, and to mark the occasion, Charles, the Prince of Wales, wrote an op-ed in the Vatican's daily newspaper. Jerry, what did Prince Charles have to say about Cardinal Newman? You know, he had a meeting with the Pope on the morning of the beatification, of the canonization. He had a meeting with the Pope in St. Peter's. He thanked the Pope for the canonizing Newman, and he encouraged the Pope on his work on climate change and on the environment. And then uh, the Pope said to him, I read your article. And the, uh, Charles was amazed. Uh, Charles's article is like nothing we've seen in, in, in the Vatican uh, newspaper. How is it different? Well, it picks out one of the great lights, the great theologians of the English church in the last three, four hundred years. And he says, this man speaks to our world today because he was able to respect differences and see how differences can contribute to harmony. And he was also able to argue without offending and he was able to say things, but in a way that respects the other person. And of course, in a climate like England today, where there is real uproar, real anger over the question of Brexit and people on either side, and the insults, lack of respect, uh, difficult even to listen to the other person, Charles, in his article, puts up Cardinal Newman, St. John Henry Newman, as an example, even to people in his own country. Yeah, it was really a um, heartfelt article. I was, I was struck by, one, kind of how poetic it was, but two, how, how sincere it seemed. Yes, Charles is uh, struggling, as Cardinal Nichols told me. He's likely to be the future head of the, the future king in the country. His mother's 93, he's 70. Uh, and he is struggling with this concept of how you reconcile differences, how you can bring differences into harmony. And he finds in Newman a guiding light for this. Jerry also interviewed Cardinal Vincent Nichols, the Archbishop of Westminster, about Cardinal Newman. And you can read that interview along with all of our coverage of this weekend's canonizations at americamagazine.org. Jerry, I know you've got a lot to cover this week, so I will let you go. Thank you so much uh, for taking some time to chat this week. Thank you, Colleen. It's great to have this conversation. Look forward to our next segment. All right. Bye. Inside the Vatican is produced by America Media at our William J. Lowshirt studio in New York City. Our executive producer is Eloise Blondio. Production help this week from Tucker Redding. Our news producer is Kevin Clark. Inside the Vatican is mixed by Noah Levinson. Our studio manager is J.R. Kronheim. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org or follow us on Twitter at americamag. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Dilley. We'll see you next week.